Welcome to Socolo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Hollywood Mexicans and the History of Los Angeles is a multimedia exploration of the historic and cinematic encounter between early Hollywood and Southwest culture. The program is moderated by essayist, critic, and poet Max Benavidez. The panel discussion is accompanied by spoken and musical excerpts from They Shoot Mexicans, Don't They?, an original theater piece directed by Teresa Chavez. I'd like to introduce our three panelists. On my left is Beto Arcos, who is currently the host of KCSN's Latin world music show, Noche de Ronda, and the founder of KPFK's Global Village. <laughs> On my right is William Deverall, who is a professor of history at USC, where he's published eight books on California. Bill is a director of the newly established Huntington USC Institute on California and the West. And on Bill's right is Teresa Chavez. She is co-founder and artistic director of About Productions. She co-wrote, directed, and produced by the hand of the Father on Earth as it is on Heaven, and they shoot Mexicans, don't they? She is a professor of interdisciplinary studies at CalArts. Welcome, Teresa. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about uh, what we can expect. Yes, we're going to build tonight's panel around They Shoot Mexicans, Don't They?, uh, which is a new theater work that I've co-written with Rose Portillo, who you will meet in a moment. The piece explores early film history. It also explores early Hollywood and the representation of Latinos in that period. Without further ado, I'm going to introduce Rose Portillo and Michael Manuel. is, as I mentioned, the co-author of this piece, and she's also a well-known theater, TV, and film actress and visual artist, educator. And Michael Manuel, who we're really glad to have with us in this production, is associated with a number of different theater companies in L.A. and has performed at the Mark Taper Forum, South Coast Rep, with Cornerstone Theater, at the Geffen Theater, Shakespeare Festival L.A., and he's the current president of Interact Theater. Each of them play three different characters, and we're going to get into that in a moment. Um, next, I'd like to introduce Quetzal Flores, who is the musical director of They Shoot Mexican Center. And just briefly, when we first started the process, Beto was our music supervisor and consulted with us about the period uh, the late 20s, which is what the piece is set in. Then we brought in Quetzal, and he started working with his collaborators on creating original music, recording it, and performing it live in the piece. So as I mentioned earlier, each of the actors plays multiple characters. Rose is going to start out playing Gloria de Ramirez, the film historian, and Michael's going to play the Barker, who barks for the Ramirez studio and tries to get Los Angelinos to get interested in finding their Latin souls through uh, dance. So here we go. I walk down the sidewalks of downtown Los Angeles and I can't help but wonder what my family first saw when they arrived in the late 18th century. There are no traces of their existence left. The land that they first knew as New Spain, and then Mexico, 
by 1927 was being cemented over by an American claim on this land. But they still have each other and the movements and rhythms of their culture which they feel with their feet and in their hearts. And at this moment, something else is happening. A new world of moving pictures is trying to capture that lost culture. It even enters the minds and hearts of Midwestern shop girls. draped on the shoulders of dainty and demure femme fatales fill your dreams. Ladies, do dark and alluring eyes burning into your soul, leading you step by step into a world of unknown passion intoxicate. But ladies and gentlemen, if you want to enhance your Latino quotient, it's not a potion I propose, but a simple visit to the Ramirez Dance Studio. Oh, I, I know that place. A simple walk across from the San Gabriel Mission and San Gabriel Playhouse, home to the now famous and ever popular Mission Play. I say an Indian. Currently the longest running play in the USA and written by our own John Stephen McGrawrity. Who? California poet laureate, U.S. congressman and converted Catholic. A play featuring the dancing talents of none other than Raul D. Ramirez. Oh, he's my cousin. The play, so which harkens back to a time when California was the happiest place the world had ever known. There was peace and plenty, and hospitality became a religion. Song and laughter filled the sunny mornings. There was feasting and music, the strum of guitars and click of castanets under the low-hanging moons. Toil was easy, and the burden of existence light. It was utopia. Nothing like it had existed before, nor had any approach to it existed since. I memorized everybody's lines. Classic this utopia for as little as $100 an acre. On easy terms, you know, a 100 acre track on once with the San Diego's Mission Land Rest. Yes, that of you be yours for almost no money down. Oh, delightful climate, schools, boulevards, and ladies and gentlemen, electricity. Need I say more? Your own fertile mission lot, suitable for growing. Maybe even wine grapes, much like the Padres in their heydays. Waste no time. Visit us downtown office in Bradbury. We'll see in the next clip Rose is going to do about the Latin wave that was going on at that time. And the Barker starts talking about the mission play. And Bill Deverell, to my left, who has written a book called Whitewashed Adobe, has a chapter specifically on the mission play. So I'm interested in his response to hearing it represented that way. I love it. <laughs> um, mission play is a remarkable um, production on the landscape here. Those of you that don't know the Mission Play, it opened here in Los Angeles in 1912. It's held initially on the grounds of the San Gabriel Mission, and then in the 20s they build the Playhouse for them, which is the San Gabriel Civic Auditorium now. Uh, and the Mission Play is a, a morality play and a California history lesson all brought to stage. And it's uh, a heavily uh, nostalgic and sentimental view of the Mission period essentially leapfrogs over the unpleasantness of the Mexican War in the mid-19th century when Los Angeles really does come of age as an American possession. And uh, what's remarkable about it is that 
not only do a rumored two to three million people see it, but it gets roped into the curriculum for California school kids who go by the busloads in the 20s and the early 30s to see California history brought to life about the transition from a, a Latin past to California's destination, which is the Anglo-American present. Los Angeles comes of age in the 1880s, really, as an Anglo-American possession. And the boom of the 80s, which proceeds more or less unabated until today, the boom of the 80s starts to grab hold of this notion that this is a special place, a Mediterranean place, a place that needs to be uh, made um, part of a, the tourist juggernaut, settler juggernaut that comes out here. And the way they do that is they hold on to the romantic aspects of the landscape and very, very cleverly bypass the recent grimness of the 1840s and 1850s when Los Angeles is really an a endlessly violent place and a violent place precisely on racial lines. Mm -hmm. And so the booster myth or the booster um, attraction to the place ignores that by, by definition. I'm just, I'm just curious what sort of um, migration was, was happening at the time, say from Mexico, from northern Mexico into uh, the LA area. Migration from northern Mexico is relatively small in the end of the uh, towards the end of the 19th century. It accelerates for several reasons. It accelerates at the turn of the century because of revolutionary turmoil, which will erupt in 1910 across the border in Mexico. That's going to uh, accelerate the push factor for Mexican laborers and also uh, some Mexican elites and Catholic priests and others who will come across the border fleeing the revolutionary turmoil. And simultaneous to that, there's a huge pull factor because Los Angeles is industrializing and growing by leaps and bounds, both territorially as well as uh, structurally. And that requires uh, endless amounts of labor, which the Mexican workforce provides. Thanks, Bill. Um, Teresa, do we go to another excerpt? Yes, actually, I thought, Beto, you could give us a little context. This excerpt is going to be with Rosita, who is dying to get into the movies. That's her goal in life. And directly following that is going to be a song. The song is called Luna Caprichosa, and it's actually Rosita's theme, in a way. But, Beto, why don't you talk a little bit about that? I think it's important to keep in mind of what kind of music is heard during this period, not just here in California, but the music that actually migrates from Cuba into Mexico into Southern California at the time in the Southwest for that matter. What you hear may sound to you like mariachi without trumpets, but it's not. It's going to be a bolero, which I'm told initially was inspired by a choro, which is a Brazilian style, which was also quite popular during the period in the 1910s into the 1920s in Brazil, but very much uh, music that was comparable to ragtime, comparable to what was happening in, in Mexico as well, with the influence of the early bolero that came from Cuba into Mexico. So did you hear what happened? Did you hear? No. Beto went with Memo. I, yes, it's true. You go on the corner of um, something and something, I don't know. But I know that you go and you stand there under this tree and they come. Yeah? They just come and they say, who wants to be in the movies? Who can do this or that? And if they like how you look and you can do this or that, they take you. And ta-da, you're in the movies. Yeah. You know what else Beto said? He said that now is a good time to be Mexican. Yeah, because everybody wants a Latin type. Yeah, he said that ever since Valentino became so popular, um, we can ride the, ay, como se dice, the Latin wave. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You know what else they say? 
They say, that Dolores del Rio is the most beautiful woman in the United States. In the United States. <laughs> and she's Mexican! Well, you know what that means. I'm Mexican. Yeah. And American. And Indian. Well, we don't talk about that. <laughs> I'm California. Yeah. That means I'm a Latin type. Come on, let's go right that way. Yeah, we... What? You don't believe me? Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. You'll believe me when you see me. So the music, it sounded from that period, and yet it's something new that Quetzal has written. Can you talk a little bit about how that was recreated as well as another kind of layering? There was this understanding that mostly bands that were string instruments. The trumpet as such really didn't come into, uh, to be used as a regular instrument until much later. In fact, it was uh, the sound of the mariachi was actually popularized in film. Now, what they're trying to recreate here is really a sound that is not just California of the period that we're talking about, but also the, the sort of the sound of California today. Thank you, Beto. Teresa, should we go to another excerpt? Yes, to the next excerpt. Michael will play Raul de Ramirez, who is actually a character based on my uncle. He actually had the studio across from the mission, and Hollywood would come to the studio to learn Latin dance, Spanish dance. But anyway, our version, Raul doesn't own the studio, La Maestra does. Rose plays the aunt who is the controller of what steps are appropriate to keep in the tradition. And so they're having a conversation about that. Then Rose is going to transform back into the film historian and uh, we're going to hear a little bit about Valentino. Raul, Raul, what are you doing? That's, that's not nice. That's not how I taught you. I'm just experimenting. What is there to experiment? There's nothing to experiment. There is simply to rehearse, to perfect, to improve. There's more to express than mere repetition. To change a step is to change history. I cannot change history. It is in the past. Don't be fresh. That's not the proper sequence. Our audience expects authenticity. Our audience expects to be entertained. Exactly, and authenticity has been more than entertaining. Is it any less authentic to feel the movement? To alter a step because your heart feels it must be so? The combination as I taught it to you, as it was taught to me, is what makes it authentic. Those movements are your ancestors speaking. They are in your blood. They are who we are. They are who you are. Senorita, since when do we use fans? Ever since Valentino. 
Everyone loves Valentine. Women love Valentine. Men are intrigued. He is not a real man. He's intoxicated. Dark Italian tango pirate. An aristocrat. An imposter. He's beautiful. I. He is a fraud, a pretender, a lounge lizard. You are a real death. You would put Valentine up to shame. You are a you can trace your lineage, a real California. Not some fake cake eating, Valentino. And put away those fences. Rodolfo. Alfonso, Raffaello, Pierre, Filiberti, Giuglielmi, De Valentina, D'Anton Duola. Valentino. Yes, women loved Valentino. And women who loved women loved Valentino. And men who loved men loved Valentino. Everybody loved Valentino. Except, of course, those concerned with a nation devoid of genetic inferiority. Concerned that America keep its distance from the dark foreigner. Oh, they said as much. In pamphlets, classrooms, and conferences across the country. The productive new world cannot afford the inefficiencies of the sensuous old world. Valentino became the poster boy for those who feared the spoiling of pure bloodlines. Those who feared race suicide. But he was also the poster boy for the perfect Latin lover, a modern Mediterranean Don Juan, moving silently across the screen and with every step transcending the earthly politics swirling around him. What if you just want to change the step, the movement ever so simply, a slight nuance of the arm, the speed at which it moves, begin to interpret the past and bring it into the present, into this body now. The past as I feel, not as I know it, like an exact navigation with precise longitude and latitude, but more like a circumnavigation of movement that is felt through listening to the body's memory. Perhaps free of history itself? I can live with that. If only I could.
section, a lot of uh, interesting questions came up about authenticity, about, you know, what is the legacy that's been passed on, and Bill, you are the historian, so I'm going to turn to you about what is the authentic LA or the authentic identity. Yeah, authenticity is what we're all kind of looking for. Um, in the 20s, there is a fascination with Mexico here in Southern California, as well as the greater Southwest, as well as in places like Manhattan. Los Angeles is a funny place in this regard. It's always had a kind of schizophrenic regard for Mexico and for certainly for Mexicans. In the 20s, there really is this modernist discovery of primitive Mexico. So there's an attempt to find authenticity by going to Mexico, by consuming Mexican products. There's a, a heyday in Mexican craft work. There's a heyday of Mexican music. Los Angeles comes of age, the race mixing stuff in this last scene is right on schedule for the 1920s. Los Angeles in the 1920s is terrified of miscegenation. Um, some of the most important miscegenation cases in legal terms are come out of Los Angeles in the 20s and 30s and 40s. So this notion of race mixing is very frightening to the culture here in Los Angeles, a place that self-consciously sets itself up as an Anglo-Saxon city of the future. At the same time, you can't build that city unless you have Mexican labor. So then a whole set of very, very complicated cultural responses take place, one of which is to sexualize or sensualize the Latin presence. Valentino's a perfect example of this, but so are the uh, sultry senoritas of the period. You sexualize or, or um, sensualize them, which seems to make them somewhat uh, safer in some regard, but once that equation comes to its natural fruition and you get the threat of race mixing, then the community goes crazy again, legally and otherwise. So it's endlessly complicated. Somewhere in there, th there's authenticity, but it's going to take lifetime's pursuit to try to figure out what's exactly it. You're absolutely right. Please. Yeah, I think the problem of saying what is authentic, it basically means you're turning culture into a static entity. And to look for authenticity or look for what is the real tradition is basically saying that there's a cutoff point and so it can't grow. So Los Angeles, we have that problem in the arts and in music is that everyone tries to say, well, what is authentically LA? What is your music? Well, it's a mixture of so many different things, not to mention if you look at immigration in the last 25 years, you have waves every five years of new Mexicans or new Central Americans from different parts of their countries as well. So the culture is always regenerating itself. You couldn't study a culture without cutting it off somewhere, and you couldn't actually be within your own culture producing work without having to somehow put it into some paradigm, some model, and that's really the problem, especially in LA, at the arts. Yeah, so this post-structuralist we're <laughs> looking at here, Teresa. Um, we've got somewhat of a segue into what I think is going to be the last section, which is from the piece Gloria the Historian talking to the film In Caliente, which was a film that was shot, I believe, in 1932 in Tijuana and starring Dolores Del Rio. She's speaking about this relationship between the U.S. and Mexico, especially specific to the time. 
in our research looking for you know things that would that were popping out of the period that just spoke and Dolores Del Rio becomes a theme in the piece it made sense to have her. Didn't she make it in Hollywood because she didn't have a, a strong accent? Yes, she yeah. was a silent film actress um, and she actually played Ramona among other things but she also played Russian peasants and mm. Germans and all kinds of characters until the talkies and then she became much more boxed in Rose thinks this is the only time she plays a Mexican in the talkies in in the United States. Yeah, yeah. Because once once her film career in Hollywood started to well, she made the choice to go back and be part of the Mexican film industry. You don't want to spend the rest of your life in a jail in Mexico, do you? But a tame Mexico is beautiful. Think only of beauty. Think only of us. Here in our bower, you a woman made for love. And I, a man, ready to pour the molten gold of my affection at your feet. Ah, Mexico. Tamed by the sweet sophistication of the partner on it. Thanks for listening to Socolo. Hollywood, Mexicans, and the History of Los Angeles. The Los Angeles Public Library and Socolow, a cultural forum for the new L.A., present this monthly lecture series. Socolow, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California, sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Socolow is made possible by Semper Law Group, Washington Mutual, and the Library Foundation of Los Angeles. Thanks for joining us.